James 5, starting with verse 7. Well, what does the Lord have for us today? That is the question. His word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. What does the Holy Spirit have for us this morning? It is great to come before the Lord, to place ourselves before his word, anticipating that he will speak to us, perhaps even in some surprising ways this morning, as he has been faithfully doing through this book of James. So we're in the last chapter, James 5, verses 7 through 9 this morning. The title of my message is Patience in Suffering. Let us now hear the word of God to us, starting with verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Let us pray. Well, dear Lord, our Father in heaven, our trust, our hope this morning is that you will illuminate your word, that you will speak to us. Lord, I am aware this morning that the word that I bring for some may seem rather alien this morning as we speak about you and your return. Lord, I pray that you would take what's perhaps been in our hearts as a distant reality and you would bring it home to us this morning. Lord, I ask that you would light the fires of anticipation in my heart as I preach, and in each and every one here who listens, that we may desire, righteously desire, what you have prepared for us for all eternity, even now as we live here on earth, in our trials, in our temptations, in our struggles, and yes, in our suffering. Amen. Amen. Well, church, I would say that the sweetest, most memorable day of my life, other than my wedding day, was the birth of our first child. I've been thinking about it kind of a lot lately, as we've had many births here at Palm Vista this year. It's been an active year. But of course, leading up to that moment where Cindy and I greeted our firstborn child, came nine months of waiting and waiting. You ladies know that wait well. For you who have been pregnant, you know what that is like. Months of morning sickness, months of just bizarre, insatiable cravings, right? Swollen feet, flip-flops, hormonal flip-flops, sleeplessness, and then the day arrives. The birthing tremors, right? The tribulation, right? (laughs) That we call contractions. And it gets harder and harder to the point of transition where the child is near. Well, I've seen my wife go through birth three times without medication. And I can tell you, I have heard the screams up close and personal. 
And I've asked the question time and time again, how can my wife endure this pain? How could bombs throughout the centuries endure such discomfort of pregnancy and the pain of giving birth? Well, church, this answer is simply this. My wife, like every mom, knew what awaited her on the other side of those birth pains. What awaited her? A new life. The birth of a child. I can still see the expression, particularly emblazoned on my mind, when she gave birth to our third child. Lifted her up out of the hot tub in our birthing cottage where we're giving birth, and well, we'd never made it much farther. She had the baby right then and now. And I can remember the excruciating pain on her face. And in the next moment, when the child came, screaming, praise Jesus, praise Jesus. I can remember her face just lighting up as she saw and greeted her third child. One moment, it was tears of pain. The next moment, tears of joy. Well, today we're going to take a look at what it means to endure suffering with a pregnant patience. A pregnant patience. A patience that looks not to the maternity ward, but a patience, patience that looks heavenward this morning. When a woman is pregnant, at least in the English language, we say that she is expecting. May we say this morning that in our trials and in our suffering that we too are expecting. What we are to expect and how it is to shape and to inform our thinking when it comes to suffering and trials is going to be the topic at hand this morning. And my proposition for you this morning from the text, verse 7, is simply this. Patiently endure. Patiently endure until the coming of the Lord. You see, today in our passage, James is turning his attention from the rich oppressors, those that Jose spoke about last week, and he's turning his attention now to the brothers, to the Christians in the church who have been oppressed. Presumably presumably those who have suffered economically. Presumably those who have suffered righteously for their faith in Christ, as we see in verse 6. But you see, James doesn't give us a whole lot of more details, does he, regarding this suffering and what we're to endure in this passage. But perhaps he doesn't need to this morning. The question before us in our text is not, why do we suffer? It's a great question. But we're not going to go there this morning. It's not even so much all the different ways in which we suffer. That, too, is worthy to explore. But this morning, we're going to address this, and that is, how are we to endure sufferings, particularly as Christians? How do we maintain hope in the midst of suffering? How do we not abandon our faith in the midst of suffering? How do we as Christians endure to the end? So two simple points this morning drawn from verse 7, our proposition. Number one, patiently endure. Number two, the reason why, until the Lord returns, until the coming of the Lord. Let's look back at verse 7. 
a little more closely, shall we? James says this, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do you see a theme there? I think it's pretty obvious, isn't it? It's patience. Well, what is patience? A definition for you, patience defined, is the capacity to accept or to tolerate delay, trouble, here we go, or suffering without getting angry or upset, i.e., without grumbling. Well, thank you, Noah Webster, for that definition. But you know what? When I read that, I find it a little incomplete, or at least inadequate. Okay, it's the capacity to accept or tolerate suffering, okay? Well, the question I have is, how how do you get that capacity? How do you get that capacity for patience? I mean, you ever wonder that? I mean, like, you know, when God was handing out patience, you know, beginning of time, in all creation, or in the womb, like, did I miss that gene? Did I miss that DNA? Like, you ever, you ever wondered that? I, I, I have. Particularly when it comes to fishing. My wife, some of you know, loves fishing. Let me tell you, I really don't like fishing. But I figured it out a couple years ago. It's because I am so impatient. I'll cast the line maybe five times. If there's no nibble, I am convinced there's no fish in this lake. I can't see them. I can't hear them. I can't feel them. They're not there. So Cindy graciously has instituted the 10-cast rule in our family. I have to cast the line at least 10 times before giving up. My wife, oh, it's totally different. When it comes to fishing, ah, hope springs eternal. Okay, for my wife. It's like she can see, smell, and sense that the fish are near, that the big one, the big catch, is almost there. That big catch is imminent. She's so patient. What, what amazes me is she'll go out for a day, she'll get blanked, get no fish, not a zip, zilch, and she'll be back the next day anticipating the big catch. Well, that is not me, my folks. Oh, but I want that patience. So you see, in order for patience to suffer, excuse me, in order for patience to function in the face of suffering or even fishing, patience must be coupled with hope. They go together. You see, patience must have an end in sight, that which you can conceive of or see. In other words, a patience, our patience must be pregnant. Notice the word patience in our text, in verse 7. It's coupled with this word twice, the word until, right? Until the coming of the Lord. Then later down in that same verse, until it receives the early and the late rains. See, there's an expectation in these verses, aren't there? An anticipation of something that is worth enduring for. In our example that James gives in verse 7, the farmer sows, right? And he waits. He's patient. But he, he's not patient just for patience's sake. No, he's patient because he's anticipating 
a harvest. What we read here is the precious fruit of the earth. So he patiently waits for the early rains in Palestine in October and November, those rains that would moisten the soil and cause the seed sown to germinate. He's patient to wait for the latter rains that would come in March and April that would secure an abundant harvest. And so he sets his sights on the harvest, on the fruit, on the reward. Here's the point I think James is making here. The farmer, he can't bring in the harvest no more than he can cause it to rain. But he can and does patiently sow and wait and wait for that day. Friends, that day is coming. It's a day of harvest. It's a day when we will wait no more. It's a day when suffering will be no more. It's the hope of every Christian who has suffered life's hardship. It's verse 7. It's the hope of the coming of the Lord. See, what marks us as Christians? It's not that we suffer. All humanity suffers. No, what marks us Christians is that we patiently endure. What marks us as Christians is not that we groan. We all groan. But it's that we live with the hope of glory. So the question this text begs of us this morning is do you have that hope, that hope of glory? And is it functioning in your life right now, particularly as it relates to the trials and the hardships and the suffering that you're facing? So point one, we're to patiently endure. Why? What's the reason? Point two, until the coming of the Lord. That is our motive. That is the hope. But you see this phrase, coming to the Lord. It's a phrase that, well, certainly early Christians would have undoubtedly understood and, yes, anticipated. And I want to unpack it here this morning. I think it's a phrase that, frankly, it just trips off our lips a little too lightly. Yeah, coming to the Lord. I know it, theologically. He's come once. Christ is returning a second time. But it did not trip off the lips lightly of James's audience to those who are being oppressed and suffering. In church, it shouldn't trip off our lips too lightly either today. For this phrase, coming of the Lord, refers to Jesus Christ, his return as judge and as savior. As judge and as savior. Actually, the word, the original word there for coming, the coming of the Lord, literally means being alongside of, denoting a physical presence of a ruler who is coming alongside of us. That's what it means when we say the coming of the Lord. Who is coming beside us? It's the King, the King, Jesus Christ, who is coming back to earth to live and to rule among us in a new heaven, in a new earth. Oh yes, Christ did come, didn't he? He came roughly 2,000 years ago. He came to live, right, a perfect life that we cannot live and to die a death that we deserve. He came to die on a cross for our sins. Christ came as a sacrificial lamb slaughtered on the cross in our place. 
But there's a day, my friends, where Christ is returning. And you know what? He's not coming back as a sacrificial lamb. He's coming back as the coronated, conquering king to take his own unto himself. You see, what was accomplished at the cross nearly 2,000 years ago will be fully, fully, and completely, irreversibly fulfilled on that day when Christ returns. Justice will be done. Not only will it be done, justice will be seen as having been done in all the heavens, in all the earth, on that day. On that day, the dead will rise to life. On that day, the unrepentant will be judged and bear the just penalty for their sins. And that penalty is hell, eternal separation from God's goodness and benevolence forevermore. But on that day, all the repentant, all those who placed their faith in Christ Jesus and received his just payment for their sins will come to Christ, will be gathered unto their king, unto himself for all eternity. Church, that is our hope this morning. That is our hope in suffering. What does it mean for us as believers to have hope in our suffering? It means that all enemies of Christ, therefore our enemies, will one day be judged. All opposition to the king will be ended. All wrongs will be righted. All sin on earth will be vanquished. And in Christ's kingdom, which you will come to consummate on that day, there will be no more suffering. There will be no more pain. There will be no more mourning. There will be no more tears. There will be no more death forevermore. Why? Because Christ has come to make all things new. Just jot down Revelation 21. I wish we can just camp in that today. But do read that. That explains the kingdom which Christ is coming to consummate and fulfill upon his return. My friends, this is the end of our patience. This is what it means to have a pregnant patience in the midst of suffering. We patiently endure, knowing that our suffering is not the end of the story. If you have chronic illness this morning, I know a number of you have back pains, migraine headaches, Lyme's disease, arthritis. Your suffering is not the end of the story. No matter what conflicts you're constantly right now persevering through, at work, in your marriage, in your parenting. Your trials and your suffering is not the end of the story. No matter where you are this morning financially, in your never-ending pursuit for employment, that is not the end of the story. We're getting now to the end of the story. And does this end inform how we think and how we live today, how we endure. You see, in this passage, God isn't just saying, get with the program. 
He's not just saying as my football coach used to say, suck it up, Corey. That, that never helped. That wasn't helpful. Why? Why should I? You see, God is not just saying to James, have patience, as if it's something you can will and just bring about on your own. He's not saying get patience as if it is a commodity. And what's that ad? Got milk, right? Like you can just go buy it. You can't. No, patience, church, is something that was purchased for us at the cross of Jesus Christ. Say that again. Patience was purchased for us at the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, patience is knowing that our sin has been judged at the cross fully. And it's knowing that our enemies, those who are Christ's enemies, will be judged upon his return. Patience is knowing that we have been saved from the penalty of sin, but one day we will be saved from the very presence of sin and even suffering itself, which sin brings. Patience is truly the hope that springs eternal. So are you this morning certain of this hope in your suffering? Is your patient pregnant this morning, longing for Christ's return as a mom awaits and longs to see the face of her newborn child? Like the farmer awaits the harvest, like the fishermen or women awaits the big catch. Oh, may it be. For Christ's coming, it is certain. It is certain. Just as Christ bodily ascended into heaven, we're told in Acts 1 that Christ will bodily return. No and, if, buts about it. His return will be sudden. His return will be personal. His return will be visible. And his return will be loud. I just got to read a couple of verses here for you. Just, just to cement this in our minds. Matthew 24, 27. We read, For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In verse 30. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. In 1 Thessalonians 4.16 we read, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Louder than any vuvuzelas, whatever they're called, in the World Cup. <laughs> the whole world are going to hear. <laughs> you thought you'd heard that? That's nothing. <laughs> Just wait until the coming of the Lord. You see, this isn't some obscure peripheral teaching that we just kind of, you know, an appendage to our nice little Christian doctrine. It isn't something we just tack on to the end of our faith. No, Christ's return is part and parcel of the gospel. You see, the gospel, the good news, Jesus Christ, it's not just his life. Oh, it's his life that he lived for us, his perfect life. It's not just his death, the death that he died. It's not only his resurrection, which validated his very promises and claims. It's not just his ascension back to heaven from when he came. The gospel is also Christ's return to earth, to live and to dwell among his people forevermore. It's his first coming upon which he died that secured and purchased 
that which he'll bring in the second coming for all those who are in Christ to enjoy. Do you realize, I didn't know this, the New Testament contains over 300 references to Christ's return. That factors out to be about one in every 13 verses in the New Testament has some reference or allusion to the return of Christ. You see, is this expectant? Is this pregnant patience operating in your life this morning? Is it functioning in your trials and in your oppression right now? In your chronic illness? In your employment? In your fight for faith as a single mom or parent? In your fight against sin and the cultural battles that we wage? Even in your marriage when you see your sin and it is so ugly and despicable? Does this truth enter in even then during your struggles? You see, the church had a, the early church had an expression. I love it. Maranatha. Come, O Lord. Come, O Lord. There was an eagerness, an eagerness that we see throughout Scripture for the Lord's return. It's expressed throughout the New Testament, even in the Old through the prophets as well. Let me just read one from Hebrews 9.28. Love the way it's said here in Hebrews 9. So Christ, having been offered once to hear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You see, this reminder of the Lord's return, it's grace to us, isn't it? It's grace to us in our very suffering. Please don't miss this. God's grace comes to us not only as we reflect upon what occurred at the cross. But God's grace comes to us as we anticipate what is yet to come, his second coming. In other words, grace doesn't just point backwards. Grace points forward as well to his second coming. I want you to hear another verse. It's a familiar verse that I know we've quoted many times here at Palm Vista. It comes from Titus 2. I want you to listen to it, perhaps with fresh ears this morning, based on what we just heard about the Lord's return and our eagerness for his return. I'll read Titus 2, 11-13. Just listen to the word of God. For the grace of God has appeared. Pentacle statement, that grace is Jesus Christ. Bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And catch this, verse 13. Waiting for a blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, the grace of God operates in our lives as we wait, as we wait and hope in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps you say this morning, thank you, Corey, that's, I think that's helpful. You know what? I, I do believe that. And that is my hope. But I'll be honest with you, his coming seems so distant to me right now. It's all rather foggy, a distant reality. I think the Lord would want you to hear this morning through his word as well. Not only is his coming certain, 
but his coming is near as well. It's for not, not for no reason that in verse 8, James inserts, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. In other words, it is near. The coming of the Lord is at hand. We see it in Christ's parables. The New Testament authors continually assert this reality that Christ's return is near. The Bible closes with these words in Revelation 22. These words of Christ. Behold, in other words, see, I am coming soon. It is true, church, we don't know the exact time of his coming, but we need all we know, all that we need to know. What is it that we need to know? Second Peter 3, verse 8 says, But not, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. He is not slow. When it's October, Christmas for my children still seems an eternity away. But for as a parent, on the other hand, who's been through a few Christmases, when all the Christmas merchandise hits the stores, used to be in the fall, now it's late summer. You know what? Christmas isn't like near. Christmas is here. (laughs) It is here now. So says James of Christ's return. Christ's return may seem slow to you in coming as Christmas is for a child. But in Christ's eternal view of life, oh, it is here. And it will be here in a blink of an eye. May we have such a view. That's why the Apostle Paul could say of his suffering, much suffering, he could say in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You catch that? This momentary affliction. Paul saw his affliction. He saw his suffering in light of eternity and in light of Christ's glorious return. So James says, establish your hearts, stand firm with a steely resolution and determination. Don't give in to doubt in the face of suffering. The finish line is just ahead. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't lose all for that which you have suffered. What happens when we lose hope? What happens when we fail to patiently endure? What happens when we give in to unbelief regarding Christ's imminent return? You see, instead of waiting for Christ's vindication, instead of waiting for his salvation, we assert our own rights. I want it now. We want justice now. So we grumble and we complain under stress, in our suffering, under perceived oppression. And our pregnant patience, it's aborted. 
It's aborted. And so James reminds us of the perils of patience aborted in this very next verse, verse 9. Our warning in our suffering. Verse 9, he says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Who is this judge? I think the context is clear, isn't it? It's Jesus Christ who is returning, and he's standing at the door. And we, that's every Christian, will appear before the judgment seat, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5. What is in question then, as Christians, will not be our salvation, but our reward, our portion of the harvest. But why does James say, do not grumble, kind of odd, against one another? I think we can see the connection, can't we, in our own lives, in times of suffering. How easy it is to explode, right, in anger and frustration when we're under stress and duress. The word grumble is translated many places elsewhere in the New Testament as the word groan. See, we groan in our oppression, or that which we perceive as oppression. And we grumble to and we grumble against one another. I'm so tired. I'm so sick and tired of, you fill in the blank. You are the victim and every other person is the oppressor in your suffering. So you grumble, so you complain until your inward target seeks an external target, another person. In your effort to find relief, in your desire for consolation, you make idolatrous demands of one another, demands which no person can fulfill. And in making those demands, you get angry, you get impatient, and you grumble and complain. You see, grumbling, I'm afraid, can too often be tolerated, even in Christian circles. In the words of Jerry Bridges, who wrote a book by its name, I think grumbling can become almost one of those respectable sins. At least sins that we tend to tolerate or treat with less severity in our lives. Especially grumbling in its more subtler forms. We grumble about our health to one another, every ache and pain. And as you get older, the temptation just grows and grows to complain as if we should be surprised by our suffering and our health. Or we just grumble about what everyone else is grumbling about, right? About the job market, about our finances, about politics, about the travails of parenting. You name it. And because everyone else is grumbling about it, it seems a little more acceptable okay to do a little grumbling as Christians. As Bridges points out, it's these sins that we often exhibit most freely. Do you know where? In the context of a very own family, those who are closest to us. Thus we grumble to and against our parents, our spouse, and our closest friends. But in doing so, we grumble against God. You see, grumbling is not just some cathartic release. 
I just got to vent. We all have to vent once in a while, don't we? Well, it's clear in Scripture that grumbling is unadulterated unbelief. When we grumble against one another, we are really grumbling against God himself, failing to believe his promises, failing to believe his provision for you. Nowhere in Scripture do we see this perhaps more clearly than the grumbling of the Israelites in the desert on their pilgrimage to where? The promised land. We read in Exodus chapter 16, verse 8. There were so many verses I could choose here. I mean, grumbling is everywhere. Verse 8. Oh, I can, and I can relate. Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? And catch this last verse, this last sentence. Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Your grumbling is not against us. It's not ultimately against one another. It's against the Lord. It's against God. Grumbling is unbelief, my friends. Grumbling is the opposite of patience. It's the opposite of patience. Let's put it all together. Patiently endure until the coming of the Lord. If grumbling, this attitude describes you this morning, oh, there's good news. And I hope you have received it. And it's this, God has provided a way out. Perhaps many of you have heard of the name John Bunyan. He is the author of the famous novel, The Pilgrim's Progress. Next to the Bible, it is the world's best-selling book, translated into over 200 languages. John Bunyan knew suffering. He lived among the Puritans in 17th century England. When he was 15 years of age, his mother and sister died. When he was 30, his wife died leaving him four children under the age of 10, the oldest being blind. A year later, after his first wife's death, he remarried, only then to be thrown in jail for 12 years, unable to see his very own children grow up. Why? Because this powerful, uneducated preacher refused to stop preaching the gospel and to conform to the state church in England at the time. He knew suffering. He knew poverty. He knew spiritual oppression. During his second, not his first, his second imprisonment, he most likely wrote this well-known, famous book, The Pilgrim's Progress, an extended metaphor, a parable of the Christian life. One of the great scenes of the book is when the main character, Christian, is in the dungeon of Doubting Castle. And he recalls that he has a key to the door, that he has a way of escape. He says this, What a fool I have been to lie like this in a stinking dungeon when I could have walked free. In my chest pocket, I have a key called promise that will, I am thoroughly persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then, said Hopeful, a traveling companion of Christian, 
That is good news. My good brother, do immediately take it out of the chest pocket and try it. Then Christian took the key from his chest and began to try to lock, to try the lock of the dungeon door. And as he turned the key, the bolt unlocked and the door flew open with ease so that Christian and hopeful immediately came out. Three times in this passage, Bunyan says that the key was where? In Christian's chest pocket. What was that key? The promise of God that was near his chest, i.e. right here in his heart. This morning, James is giving us the key to our doubts and to our grumbling that can plague us in our suffering which can abort abort the very patient suffering to which we are called. That suffering which John Bunyan knew so much about. That key is the promise that Christ will return. That Christ one day will end all suffering. That he will make all things new. The key that was purchased for you and for me at the cross. Oh, that key is not in your heart. You will not patiently endure. You will be locked in doubting castle when the fires and trials of suffering come upon you. And you will be left, as Bunyan said, in a stinking dungeon. But church, God is faithful. He is faithful. Remember the example we're given in verse 7 of the farmer. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. Every reference to early and late rains in Scripture, in the Old Testament, refers to God's faithfulness, to God's grace. God is faithful to bring the rain. He is faithful to bring fruitfulness from our suffering that we might patiently endure. The rain isn't the harvest. It's the grace that secures the harvest in our suffering. I was re-watching the award-winning DVD series the other day, Planet Earth. I watched one of my favorite scenes. It's that of the elephants crossing the Kalahari Desert for months, blinded by sandstorms and dust devils in search of water. They're making their way to the Okavango Delta in Botswana when suddenly the rain arrives from 1,000 miles away. Rain that had fallen five months ago, begins to reach the delta. And they give this wonderful aerial view of this vast desert. And through time-lapse photography, we see that desert being filled by these rains. And it keeps coming. And pretty soon, this whole desert landscape becomes a lush water world. And then the elephants arrive. Then the giraffes arrive. Then the buffaloes arrive. Then the zebras arrive. And then the baboons arrive. And they're all frolicking and feasting in this lush water world. 
Oh, friends, this rain is coming. Oh, you may not have felt it much yet, but it is coming. It was purchased 2,000 years ago at the cross for you. And the rain is coming. And it's coming soon to you and to me. The day will suffer no more. Your liberation, your redemption, church, has been purchased. And it will be experienced. Keep on marching on. God is saying, in the sandstorms of life, the rain is coming and the harvest is near. Oh, that is my prayer this morning. That's a prayer for you this week, no matter what situation you are in. Oh, I pray, church, that God would give you the abundant grace to patiently endure, knowing there is a day. There is an Okuvango Delta day awaiting you when suffering will be no more. So take out the key in your chest pocket. It's James chapter 5, starting here at verse 7. Unlock the doors of doubt, even now as we sing. And let us sing expectantly. Worship team, let's come forward now and do just that. As we transition, let me pray for us this morning. Oh Lord, we echo the prayer this morning at the early church. Maranatha, come, oh Lord. Lord, may that be a reality in our hearts now as we sing. As I prayed earlier, light the fire of an anticipation for that day that would carry us through the darkest days, our times of doubt, and our temptation for grumbling. Oh Lord, lift our eyes now to see and to expect that day in which you will come and make all things new. That day of liberation. That day of redemption. Oh Lord, we pray. Amen.